Okay, okay, this is a Geico commercial, a 30-second one, and I'm going to throw a lot of numbers at you. Uh, the lizard voice doesn't work. But please stay with me. In just 15 minutes, you could save 15% or more on your car insurance. This company has been offering great rates and great service for over 75 years. That's the same amount of years as I've been alive. <laughs> At any time you need help, you can speak to one of their trained specialists 24-7. The company is Geico. Go to geico.com today. Sorry for all the numbers. And in 54321, I'm out of time. Now, Podcast One brings you Spikes Car Radio, a downloadable cars and coffee hosted by writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast Spike Ferriston. Now, here's Spike. Hi, everybody. Oh, my God. It's so good to be here again. I'm so excited to talk to you. First of all, thank you very much for buying a ticket and coming here. You know, you're benefiting uh, Monterey Charities. It's a nice thing to do uh, in between smoking cigars and buying cars. So I'm happy to be here with you. One of my favorite movies this year was a movie called Hurley. I don't know if you've all seen it, but (laughs) inspiring and, you know, Porsche Motorsports racing at its finest. And today we have not only uh, the guy who made it, but we have the guy who lived it. We have Hurley Haywood and Patrick Dempsey. Come on up, guys. <clears throat> Pour yourself some water. Hi, Hurley. Hi, there Hurley. he is. <laughs> Come on in. Why don't you sit right there? Good to see you, sir. Thank you for flying up. Hi, fellas. Hello again. How are you? Are you having a nice time so far? Having a great time. How long, how long have you been here, Hurley? Well, I actually started in uh, L.A. with a media group, and we drove some pretty cool Porsches up the coast. Wow. Two, a two-day trip. What cars did you drive up? Well, I was got lucky, and I was driving the 918. Wow. <laughs> which, which is a pretty nice car to drive. But we had you know, all the old cars, uh, the 996, uh, the 993, uh, the, the new Spider. So we had some pretty cool cars on the, wow. on the trip. And Patrick, you just flew in? Yeah, it was a King Air. <laughs> and then I had the Panamera from the uh, airport here. Wow. Well, I thanks. wasn't driving, though. <laughs> was like... That's a one-hour and five-minute flight. Yes. I came in on one of those, too. It's fun. Well, thank you both for being here with us Great today. To We're, uh, you know, I want to get into the movie. I want to talk about Porsche uh, racing. I want to leave a little time for the audience to ask questions because we've got two Porsche racing experts here, and I know a lot of you like these cars, and... I certainly have questions about racing, but let's start with the uh, with the movie Hurley, um, which, first of all, just I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, congratulations, Patrick Hurley. You know, I know you now in a, in, a, in an absolutely new light. But you know, as a as an admittedly shy person, right, who is forced into the spotlight in this career that gets you into it, right? I was really taken by the moment in the film where you say, "Sometimes I." You know, it was so shy, and I wanted to avoid cameras and microphones that I thought about crashing to avoid them, <laughs> right? How has your life changed now since the release of your book in this movie? I was afraid that you were going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you That's, really think that? Well, I mean, I, I wasn't going to crash the car to do any damage, but I was maybe, maybe if I drove off in the field, I would get stuck and wouldn't be able to make it make it back and okay. I could make an excuse of why I drove out in the field but you know I was just really shy and bashful to get in front of a microphone and I knew that if I won the race I would be I would have to do that so mm-hmm. 
but I quickly learned that you know it's not so bad and you can be funny and treat the microphone as something as your friend not your enemy is it hard for you to be here today no. up on stage in front of everybody no. so at some point I'm still very nervous <laughs> I get big crowds like this I, I just want to withdraw yeah well these people are very nice um, yes you, these you know uh, this seems to be the year of Hurley with you being the Grand Marshal at the 24 of Le Mans, Watkin Glen's Historics, here at Monterey Motorsports Reunion. Not to give away the movie, but when, you know, you speak about a young man who came to see you towards the end of the film, right? Uh, how has that message been received when you share that story? Well, you know, literally thousands of people have sent me emails about what they took away from the, the movie, and Nobody has said anything negative about it. And a lot of fathers and, and mothers have got sons and daughters that are gay or lesbian, and they took away from that film you know, how to deal with it, how to speak to their kids. The young man that came to my office in, in Florida you know, came for an, the type of a racing interview that I've done thousands of times. You know, it's not something that I was uh, not expecting. And he got about halfway through the interview and he sort of stopped cold in his tracks. He looked at me and he said, you know, I have been bullied my whole entire life. Every, you know, morning I wake up, every night when I go to bed, I think about committing suicide because I just don't know where I can go and what I can do. I said, just slow down Let's talk about it. I gave him some places where he could go to get some help. And away he went, and I never heard a peep from him. And then about two years later, his mother called up, and she said, you know, you had granted my son an interview. And, and I said, okay, yeah, I remember that. And I sort of had the sinking feeling that, you know, she was going to tell me that, that he had committed suicide. And she said, you completely changed his life. He, he went from being a really bad student to really a good student. He went, got accepted to college. Uh, so, you know, I just thank you because you saved his life. So, you know, I started thinking about that. And, I, you know, this was even before, you know, Patrick and, and Derek Dodge came to me with this, with this concept about doing the, the documentary. And I said... You know, if maybe I can help more than just one kid, maybe I can help two or ten or a hundred. So that's how this whole thing got uh, started to get evolved. That's an incredible story. Incredible story. So let's, let's talk about that, Patrick. You and Derek Dodge, you guys are conspiring in your Hollywood production company and going, let's make a movie, let's make a film. How does, how does that happen for us that, you know, even I'm in TV, I don't know how you get movies made. How do you get this movie made? Where does it start? It started, at, I think it was 2014 at Le Mans. I had Derek Dodge, the director. Uh, he's actually from Maine, and I'm originally from Maine. Uh, and we're both Red Sox fans. We are, so you know, All right. I know there are a few Mets Please, fans that are here. <laughs> That's a whole other discussion of what's going to happen in the World Series. Um, and Derek, he was coming over to do some social media shooting for us at, at, at the running of Le Mans. And uh, he started to meet people. It's the first time to any big race. And to start your, you, you know, your first experience at a race is Le Mans is an extraordinary first time out. 
And he really had no idea of the racing world at all. And, and he, he, God bless you, by the way. And um, he really was absorbed in a, in, a, in a new way, and he looked at things differently. And he discovered Hurley, his story, his history. And then he approached me, would you be open if I approached him to, to do, I really feel like I want to do a documentary about his life. Will he be open enough to talk about this? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, if he is and he wants to do it, I will support you 100%. And that's how it began. Wow. And it was four or five years later that we finally ended up getting it finished. Is that a film you go pitch to a movie no, company? No. This is you. This arranged. is all self-funded. Self-funded. Um, he did a little bit of a startup campaign that, to get initially going. And then once I made the decision, once I knew Hurley was involved, then I was com- committed to making sure that it was, it was done and done properly. Okay. But we didn't go to pitch it anyway. Right. I, and I prefer not to, moving forward, having learned from Art of Racing. Right. You're better off, if you have an idea, do it yourself. Yeah. Fund it yourself, take the risk, and, and do, be all in. If it doesn't have X-Men in the title, you're not going to sell it. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you, you approach Hurley to be your uh, mentor, right? It, it's, I guess was, there's Dempsey Wright Motorsports teaming up with Brumos at the time in the film. That was that... 2015. Right. We... Uh, we had a couple races. Daytona was the big race. Was that intimidating for you to approach this, this champion who's won five times at Daytona? And... No, because Brumos uh, had, has always been incredibly supportive to my mm-hmm. racing career. Even at the very beginning, um, Hurley was always watching from the distance, checking to see <laughs> what's going on with my team at the time, and, and always gave me wonderful little bits of advice along the way. So, so we had developed a relationship by the time we got to 2015. It was something that was all sort of gearing up to really focus on a full season in the WEC, starting the season at Daytona, and certainly starting with Brumos. And right. The legacy of that was great for everybody. I know John Wright, all the drivers, for all of us to represent Brumos at Daytona was a very big, big achievement. You, so the pressure was on once we got there. Yes. Hurley, you've worked with Patrick on the track. What is it like working with him in, in, in a movie, in a film? What is he like? He is super easy to work with. I mean, you know, I, I go back, uh, really kind of was introduced to Patrick when he was racing for Mazda. And I was watching him as he progressed along, and he got better and better and better as time went on. And I said to him, or I can't really remember if it was to him or to Porsche, that we need to get Patrick in a Porsche, get him out of that Mazda, get him into a Porsche. <laughs> And let him see. Let's see what happens. So that all happened, and uh, Patrick has been a wonderful ambassador for Porsche. Um, and it's just great to have him part of the family. And when he and Derek came to me with this project, um, it you know I had to think about it for a while. I mean, it was not something that I instantly said yes to, but. Uh, the end result is something that I think is really powerful. And Derek Dodge did a really super job of putting this movie together. And it involves uh, lots of different stages. So you you know, and it's it's difficult for a filmmaker to connect all those elements together, where you have something that flows easily. And I've seen lots of movies where 
you know, you just get com completely confused on where you are in the movie. You don't really follow the, the path. But in this movie, it's really crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And that was fun to watch it all come together. We, we started off a little bumpy, but once I sort of got my, my uh, trust in, in Derek, uh, it all started to to come together. Now, Patrick, you just smiled when he said it started off a little bumpy. <laughs> and the interviewer in me has to follow up you, you on had, that. It was a, the first assembly, you, you have the rough cut, it was a total disaster narratively because it was all over the place. And, you know, Derek has been on this project for four or five years and, you know, it, it's hard to get the distance. So that's when we sort of, we stepped back and we realized we had three stories going on and we had to break them down and, and to create the narrative with these three different storylines. And that's where sort of the influence came in as a producer, just stepping back and saying, okay, think about this. We need another interview to, to answer the question you set up, you set up in, the first, in the first act, so to speak. And then how do we break this down into three different narratives? Mm -hmm. And that's, that was the big challenge for us at that point. Who's idea because emotionally was it was there. there. It was all in there. It was just simplifying the storyline. And having it make sense. Um, the Brumos 918 shots are incredible. I, yeah. mean, I went back a third time just to watch those shots. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> I mean, those, whose idea was that? The archival footage, we had a lot of support from, uh, from Porsche. Yeah. Um, I did a documentary, uh, The Road to Le Mans, um, and the same person who did the archival did it for that. And we, were, we just needed archival because you needed to cut away mm -hmm. and sort of expand and show this time and place. And for the people who don't understand sport or the motorsport, we wanted to expose them. And then the hardcore enthusiasts, we had to give them something where they were like, ah, that's a cool shot. That's something unknown. And we had great support from everybody at Le Mans, or the organization there, and Porsche. From the very beginning, we said we want to do this. They were behind us. So, Hurley, in the movie, you, you're, you say that, uh, or I think it was your sister who says that you started driving at 12 years old. How does that work? <laughs> were you driving the family car when well, you were 12? No. I, I um, you know, was born and raised in, in the city, in Chicago. And we had uh, seven working farms out west of the city. And the one big farm that my grandmother lived on was kind of not really a farm, but it was more of an estate. And it had a lot of um, roads on it. So I talked our farm foreman into teaching me how to drive uh, a truck. And basically, I started off in a 1948 Studebaker truck with a manual you know, stick, stick on the floor. And he built a special seat with blocks on the, steer on the pedals. And away I went. And I drove that car from when I was 12 years old until 16 without ever getting caught by my family. <laughs> and um, one afternoon, my father was coming back from a plane around of golf a little earlier than I expected him to, and I almost ran him off the road. And he said, what are you doing? So I said, well, I've been driving this truck, and, you know. And so he was, he was pretty impressed by that, and, uh, you know, away we went. And when, when I approached him with the idea of racing, he and my mother were totally against it. You know, they've said, you are out of your mind. What are you thinking about? But I came up with this really beautiful proposal to my father. I was a business administration major in college, and uh, he was so impressed with, with the proposal that he agreed to do it. But the only caveat was that he said, 
you have to be able to stand on your own two feet after two years. I'll help you support it for two years. After two years, you've got to be good enough to keep on going. I couldn't go down. I could only go up. And, you know, all the stars lined up perfectly. And on my third year of racing, I won Daytona and Sebring back-to-back. So that was the start. That's incredible. That's incredible story. Think of all the weird things found in cars. I'm not talking about your garden variety. Petrified French fries or the stuff Moise leaves in the front of my GT2 RS, like melted crayons and all sorts of exotic fruits I didn't know existed. There's also live snakes, bizarre trinkets, the kind of stuff that just makes you wonder about folks. And I do wonder about Moise, who shares our GT2 RS sacrament. Another thing that's going to make you wonder, but in a good way, are continental belts. No, not the things you wear in your pants. These are for cars. And I bet you didn't know they're OE in tens of millions of Chrysler and Dodge, Ford and GM vehicles that roll off the assembly line. They're also OE on the majorities of BMWs and BMWs, two of my favorite brands. Now, Continental's launching the aftermarket multi-V belt and the OE pedigree. It's their OE technology series belts that are fanatically engineered for the perfect fit, form, and function. And Continental has an OE technology series multi-V belt for 98% of vehicles on the road and in the U.S. and Canada. Hey, you get enough surprises working on cars and trucks. A belt should not be one of them. Go with the Continental OE technology series multi-V belt, the belt with the OE pedigree. To get the full story, go to oetechnologyseries.com. You're listening to Spike's Car Radio. And your mom says, when you're even younger, when you, you put on a helmet, I think you had a go-kart, right? Yeah. And when you put on that helmet, you're a completely different person. What did she mean by that? Did, did she, what happens in that moment when you put on a helmet that she saw early on? Well, I think that, I mean, the helmet is an element that I think most drivers are falling to that thing. When they put their helmet on, that's business. You know, all your rest of the things that are going on in your life go out the window and you're focused on the job that you have to do behind the, the wheel of the race car. And so she saw that. She saw the, the, the personality change, the competitive spirit come out. Um, so it was always brought forward when we put the helmet on. So, you know, she saw that. And I think that most other drivers are the same way. Their, their, their helmet is the, the key to, to the competitive spirit. Yeah, you know, when I think of racers, uh, they seem normal. Like, you guys seem normal, but when you get on the track, you are animals. You are insane. And, I, you know, I think about a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, I, I came to Road Atlanta, a track I'd never driven on, to try the new GT3 RS. And everybody was excited. They said, you know, it's been raining for a couple days, and Hurley's been taking journalists around the track. But there's sun today, so you're going to have some fun. I said, well, I'm not sure I want to have fun with Hurley Haywood. And I came to you, and I said, Hurley, you know, I I don't know this track. And there are a couple of elevation changes, and I don't know if I'm going left or right, and I don't want to crash one of their cars. And you said, don't worry. It's all going to be fine. And then you went, bam, and just disappeared. And I had you in my ear. They had the little uh, uh, walkie-talkie there, and you're like, keep up, keep up with me, screaming at me. It's one of my favorite memories. And, and I, you know, I, you know, I made myself sick on that first ride in a, in a Cayman, I think, in a GT4 of all things. It's 7 in the morning, having too much coffee. I rested for a second. I, I asked you to take me out on the track, and, and, and I did a ride-along with you in the GT3 RS. And I've never experienced the GT3 RS the way I did that day with you behind the wheel. 
You're an incredible driver, but I remember you took me up to 160 into a hard left turn. I don't know what turn that is at Road Atlanta. And I felt ceramic brakes for the first time. I felt the downforce of the car for the first time. It was, it was really incredible. And it's, it's a humbling moment for us normal folks when you know that you don't have any talent close to what these guys have, right? Tell us, you know, Patrick, what, you know, and we spoke a little bit about this on the podcast, but what have you learned from Hurley as far as, you know, how to race? What are his best tips that he's given you over the years? Chew gum. Chew gum Chew was gum. the biggest thing. <laughs> Chewing gum was my big, and I, every time I would do any kind of uh, videos or interviews, Porsche would always come back to me. They were upset that I was always chewing gum. And it was because, you should tell the story of why you, you started chewing gum early on, and why was that? Well, I, yeah, the gum keeps your mouth, you know, moist, and, and it, it, you know, when you're chomping on a, on a piece of gum, you're sort of, it's a tension reliever, you know, you're, you're, you have to find ways to sort of relieve the tension, mm-hmm. because if you let the tension build up too, too strong, then you're going to make a mistake. So I always found that one, the gum kept your mouth, you know, moist, and two, it was a good way to to uh, relieve the stress. But what if you crash and choke on the gum? Well, that was That's the thing, where right? my goes right away. Everybody's like, "What are you doing, chewing gum in the car?" Yeah. If you're going to crash, you can spit it out. You know, you're going to crash. <laughs> At 160. Right. You also and it bounces back into your mouth from your house. That makes no sense. I thought you meant chew gum on the way to the car, but then spit it out. But you're well, saying in well, the, the car. Well, the problem is it becomes part of your ritual, right, before you get in and put your mm-hmm. head in. And I remember one time I, someone had taken my, my stacks of gum right before getting into a, a stint at Le Mans, and I was completely panicked. My whole preparation was based around having gum. If I didn't have gum, I was out of sequence with my ritual. And I completely panicked and finally got a piece of gum at the last minute, jumped in the car, and it took me two laps to get everything figured out because I was all uh, spun out. So yeah, because like, your system was... What kind of gum do you like, got- early? Anything that's chewable. <laughs> okay. I wish we'd had it as a sponsor. It been yeah, better. right. Yeah. You also say be patient, too. As far as racing, explain to us what that means in a race car. Why, why patience? And I know it's an endurance race, but well, you, when you look at the mistakes that people make in a race car, it's usually because they lose patience. Mm-hmm. They want to make a move, and they don't really properly analyze the downside of a move. You know, and when you're racing in long distance racing, you have a huge variable of driver talent on the racetrack. Let's just talk about Daytona. You know, you've got 60-some-odd cars at Daytona. You've got three or four, sometimes five people per car that are driving, and you have just an enormous variety of driver talent. So every car you come up to, you have to approach, because you can't really see who's in the car, you have to approach with the utmost of caution and still, you know, run a relatively good lap time. So when you have the patience part of your of your sort of mindset, you can make that work really well and not have it jeopardize your lap time. Mm-hmm. And it just takes practice and it takes experience. Being patient is is an element of, of experience. The more experience you have, the more patience you have. Now, you've both raced Le Mans and Daytona. You, you feel Daytona is a harder race to race than Le Mans? More nighttime races. 
Yeah, there's more nighttime. I was, had a really interesting conversation about this very subject with Norbert Singer, who is the father of some of the greatest race cars that Porsche's ever had. Based, and Norbert was with Peter, Greg, and myself in 1973 when we were racing the RSs at Daytona. We had one, and Roger Penske had one, and Norbert was there with that car. And I've been with Norbert all through the years. And I asked him that question. I said, what do you think is more difficult? And he said, you know, if you take both races and the you know, what you have to do to win that race is pretty much the same. The difference is, however, at Le Mans, it's harder because of all of the rules and regulations. You, the rules, I was the Grand Marshal there this year, and the rules for that uh, race are the size of a phone book. You have, I mean, it's unbelievable how you expect a driver to understand, and the team and the managers. And, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, that, that, that's what makes it hard. When, the, when you do make an infraction and you have to come into the pits for a discussion, that discussion, like in IMSA, that discussion would be, don't do that again or the next time I'm going to, you know, penalize you. Where at Le Mans, that discussion is 10 minutes. <laughs> they're discussing what they're going to do for 10 minutes while the car sits static. Huh. So that makes the whole thing a lot more difficult. And right. um, so, mm. Which did you like more? I mean, you win Le Mans, and that changes your life as a driver, doesn't it? And the same, I think, could be said for you, too, Patrick. I mean, which one, which one do you prefer if you had to pick one as, it, you know, your favorite track to race or the most significant track? Le Mans. Le Mans. For me. Why? Certainly. Just everybody in the world knows about that race. It's, it's Monaco. It's Indy. It's, one of the, it's any big sporting event. This is the one that if you're not a fan of the sport, you're, you're, you're watching. And I think the... the the amount of pressure that is on a driver at that race in particular is far greater than any other race that I've participated in. And if you could handle the mental aspect of it, you would be okay in the race. Right. And the best piece of advice was, uh, from Hurley was oh, consistency with lap time. Not, not try to be the fastest, but be consistent. And that will ultimately get you a result at the end of an endurance race. And that was the thing that I would always hear his voice in my head, always going to the bus stop at Daytona, by the way, which is where you make the biggest mistakes at night uh, if you're not careful and if you're not patient, that's where you get in trouble. And his voice would always pop up right before the, the break zone, consistency. Because if I could nail the entry into the bus stop, my lap time in the exit, my lap time would be consistent. And I could always tell right away if it was good or not. I had a mental block where I had to do a lot of visualization on getting the timing right on the downshift and turn in. And once I got through that, that was the year we had our best result. But it was all... Yeah. What about you, Hurley? What do you think? Well, I'd have to agree with Patrick. I think, you know, I think both of the races, the only thing that's the same is the distance, 24 hours. Le Mans is super fast. I mean, your average speed at Le Mans per lap is 165 miles an hour which means that you're well over 200 for a lot of the, uh, you know, the Molson straight, even though you've got chicanes there, you still get over 200 miles an hour between the two chicanes. And then after you get through 
uh, the, the hairpin at the end of the straight, you've got also another really long straightaway where actually that's the fastest uh, speed on the, on the racetrack now. And when you put together a lap, a really good lap there, you really know it. You know everything is working, everything is uh, perfect on that lap, and you just you smile and you say, That's, this is going to be a good lap. You know that before, you, before the time comes up. Where Daytona, you've got so many variables to, to deal with at Daytona. You've got, um, you know, a lot of the times you don't have the driver quality that you do at Le Mans. Uh, you've got really great cars. They've certainly improved that over the years. So I think the package that IMSA has right now is really a good package. They've got great-looking cars. And <clears throat> I went over there, you know, with the ability to sit down and talk to the ACO, which is the Automobile Club of the West, which regulates Le Mans. And they are very closely tied to the FIA. And I said, you know, why can't you guys get your heads together, get into a room, work out your rule package, and you guys are not going to leave this room until you figure it out. And why I said that was that IMSA right now has a really great uh, class. It's called DPI. And I was our team, Brumos, was the first team that actually had a deep, a deep DP car, a fab car, and that was 2003, and that concept has developed itself over the years to really a great class, which they now call DPI, DP International, and there's no reason that I can think of why those cars could not qualify uh, to race at Le Mans, and they're, from a safety standpoint, they got carbon fiber tubs, everything, and they got variable manufacturers that supply the engines. Um, so it's just, it's, they're, they're stubborn. They just don't want to do it. And if they did it, it would make life a lot simpler on both sides of the ocean. Let me ask you just a, a human question about preparing for Le Mans. Like, I always think about the things like, so it's 24 hours. What, what, are, what are you doing before? Are you getting a good night's sleep before it? Do you, is it this Red Bulls and we're up the whole time? Or you, you know, how, does it, how does sleep work? Either one of you, like, you know, how, how do you go into that race? What have you done up until that moment? You're running around from, you know, scrutineering, which starts on Sunday. You don't really get into the car until Wednesday. Right. It's a full week of a lot of press, a lot of activation for the sponsors, and then just the size of the fans. The crowds are overwhelming. So you're just going to stay You're up. going, going. So by the time the race starts, you're exhausted. Right. You, you, you hope you're not in the first stint so you can take a nap and get ready. And so then so what do you do? Five-hour energies? What do you do? No, you I mean, just, you, it's you, just you're just tired the whole time. You're in a sort of a blissful fatigue state. Really? Yeah, you're sleepwalking, and, you know, it depends. Like, Patrick Wong, could, he's like a narcolept because he'd go back to the trailer after his stint, <laughs> fall right to sleep, wake up 10 minutes before he needed to, got it together, and went. You know? Really? Yeah. yeah. And I could never sleep. I no. was always just sort of half awake. I, I, well, he, he was on the podcast, too, and I said, well, what do you do if you have to go to the bathroom? And he goes, well, you go to the bathroom. <laughs> you go to the bathroom. Right. Wow, you guys are like astronauts. It's amazing. I, I never, I'd I never have that happen. I love it. I drove a lot of co-drivers that did that, but yeah, I never did never that. No. Never? Not once? No, you don't no, want to inherit the scene after that. It's always yeah. like the worst. Um, Hurley, you talk about a 67 uh, a Corvette in college. 
as the kind of taproot race car, the car that kind of wakes up the racer in you. Um, is, is that the car that starts it all? Did you ever race that car? Do you still I, have one? Do you still like no, those cars? Uh, yeah, I, that's kind of a funny story, but it, it, it's um, when I graduated from high school, I went to boarding school up in Vermont, and my family was, was so excited that I actually graduated, graduated from some educational institution that they said, you know, what would you like? And I said, I want a motorcycle. So I ended up with a 650 Triumph, Triumph beautiful bike. I loved that thing. And soon after I got that motorcycle, my mother started reading all these articles about how dangerous motorcycles were. And, you know, so she came. She said, you've got to get rid of this motorcycle. You can, and I said, well, that's fine. I'll do that. But I've got to have a car that has an equivalent performance value. So I, I, went around, I went around and I looked at all the cars that were available. There was Nicky Chevrolet in Chicago, a hot rod store that sold really cool cars and, and found this Corvette very nicely priced. And I waited till my father was out of town and um, brought my mother down. She said, oh, that's really cute. That looks like just like you. And so I, I, told, I, I, told the, I told the salesman, I said, under no circumstances do we start this car when my mother is within us. It was loud. And uh, so that was the car I took off to college, and that's the car I used to uh, beat Peter wow. at an wow. autocross that we were at. And Peter saw something that he, you know, was able to uh, understand, and said, you know, maybe maybe this guy's got what it takes, and maybe I'll take a chance and, and put him in one of my cars. And that's what happened. So I went. He, this was 1967, so he had to be 21 to get your license back then. And so I got my license uh, May 4th, 1969. We raced in a world championship race at Watkins Glen in June. So I had no, I had zero racing experience on a racetrack with other cars. You know, autocross used one car at a time. So I said, how are we going to do this? And he said, well, it's simple. We'll get you a NASCAR license. It's $20 in the mail. Once you get that license, then you can apply for uh, a, a v, an FIA grade B license. That's all you need to race in that that race. And so we went there. SCCA was absolutely so pissed off they couldn't see straight, but there was nothing they could do. I was, you know, had my license, and uh, we ended up winning the, the class. We beat all the Corvette teams, factory teams. And that was the start. I was on cloud nine when I just won, I won a big international race. And then I got my draft notice. And I, this was in, the race was in June, and I was on an airplane going to Vietnam in November. So I didn't, <laughs> that adulation didn't last long. <laughs> Patrick, uh, by comparison, what, what do you got? Well, go yeah, go ahead. Sure. So that was your first race, competitive race at Watkins Glen? Yeah, I, had, I think I had one regional race with maybe four cars in, in the race, but that was the first major race. And was that, was that the moment you knew you can do this and be successful in that? Or was it before that? Well, uh, I mean, that was a confidence builder. So I was, you know, world championship race at that time in ni- 1969 at Watkins Glen. They had the best of the, cr- the cream of the crop. 
and you had a lot of prototypes there and all kinds of different cars. And, you know, I, I managed to keep my head above water, and I said, okay, this is something that might work. And Peter definitely saw it. So he was, he was very encouraging, you know, that we stick to our plan. And uh, I had to take a, a year and a half off in the military and came back in 71 and started again. And we won. We were co-champions in 71. And then in 72, I took over the, the GT duties, won the championship while Peter was doing the Can-Am. And then the next year, we switched. So I was doing the Can-Am in 73. And... Uh, he was back in the GT cars, and yeah. you know Mark Mark, yeah. Mark Donahue. Mark Mark Donahue was the guy that really helped me out because Peter was not helpful at all in getting my arms around a 917. He at that 917 scared him to death. Right. And so, what exactly did he find unsafe about it, and what is unsafe about it <laughs> that Everything you didn't care about? about? Have you ever looked at a 917? Yeah, I've I mean, been in them. Yeah, I know. One thing I notice is my legs are awful far forward in front of that front axle where the tires are. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's sort of the. the, the, the and you got to remember that a 91710 was a car that had aluminum tubing the size of your finger strapped to a 1250 horsepower engine where the chassis was checked if it was in you know the integrity of the chassis was good it was done with air pressure so my mechanic would air pressure the chassis to 100 pounds walk away come back in a half an hour and if it held a hundred pounds, then everything was good. So it was a flexi flyer. It, when you looked at the f- front of a modern race car, the spoiler is right on the ground. I mean, there's, you couldn't get your foot underneath it. With the 917, you could. I mean, there was probably four inches of space between the uh, when the car was static between the spoiler and the ground, and that was the reason there was so much flex in the car as you go around a corner that they had to get that um, distance. So it was alarming. You like that. <laughs> I didn't because know Peter any better. Be- I didn't, I don't I didn't know to- any better. You didn't know any better. Let me tell you something. Did you know most people have no idea whether or not the motor oil they're using is good enough to protect their engine? Everybody's driving around not even caring about what's going on under the hood. Only one brand literally goes the extra mile to test everything, including ensuring they're the right motor oil for your car. And I'm talking about Valvoline. That's right, Valvoline is the only motor oil brand in the world with an engine lab completely dedicated to testing motor oil. Valvoline takes their products and their competitors, I might add, and runs them through the gauntlet. I'm talking thousands of miles. Then the engineers and technicians take those engines apart to evaluate exactly what happened. Please don't try this at home. Trust that Valvoline has done it for you. Was there carbon buildup? How did the seals hold up? Did the engine perform like it was supposed to? And most importantly, were the critical engine components protected? You don't know, but Valvoline does. So when Valvoline is formulating motor oil for your engine, they know exactly how it performs and what protects it best because they've seen the results firsthand. It's why I trust Valvoline in my car, and it's why Valvoline has been trusted for more than 150 years. Head over to Valvoline.com slash spike to see what product is right for your engine. That's Valvoline.com slash spike. You're listening to Spike's Car Radio. I want to leave some time for questions, but first, um, you guys are both building interesting cars right now. Let's flash forward to current day. Uh, 
tell us everybody what you just built that's uh, built for off-roading a portion oh, and uh, why you why you have that car. The uh, safari car, Lee Keen. Um, <laughs> it's a 911 safari car. Yeah, so it, we, we use an 82SC as a donor body. And it is, I have to tell you, the, the safari cars are the most fun. Why? Because you can just trash the car. <laughs> and it, it will run over anything. You can just drive it. And the more messed up it gets, the better it is. If you get dents in it, it doesn't matter. It just gives it a character. And it's just fun to drive in all seasons. Have you had it off-road? Yeah, all constantly. Where? In Gorman? Maine, I have a little oh. place in Maine. So I'm running around the dirt roads and trying to find any <laughs> off-road availability for this car. And it's, it's just a lot of fun. You think the safari car craze will last? Mm, yeah, I do. I, I think people will get turned on to yeah. it. Hurley, and I heard you're building something special in North Hollywood. Tell us about that yeah. car. I've uh, always from a very early age, lusted after a 356, and I never could sort of get my arms around how, one, how expensive they are, and you pay that ungodly sum of money for a car that has absolutely zero technology. <laughs> so um, I met Rod Emery, and uh, we talked about what he was doing, and I said, that's perfect. So we ended up uh, getting a 19... Uh, 59 uh, A coupe. So we started with a coupe. And then Rod takes a, chops the top off, uh, and the end result will be a speedster, 356 speedster. Wow. And he's got a 3.4 uh, liter motor in it. It's going to be, <laughs> or not, 2.4. Two okay, I was like, oh, yeah. well. And, uh, <laughs> and it weighs 50 pounds. Yeah, and <laughs> so, so I'm really, really excited about that car. And what do you guys like that the Porsche is making new right now? What are your favorite cars to get into? Well, you know, one of the great things about a, about Porsche is that regardless of what car you're talking about, whether you're talking about a, a Cayenne, a Macan, a Panamera, or 911, their progression makes the cars much more usable for the general person, mm-hmm. the general driver. But the but they're faster. So every year they're fast. They get faster and faster and faster. These new generations, the 992 is phenomenal. And you think of a, a, a 9.9, the, the present 9.11s, and you say, how can they get any better exactly. than this? Yeah. And then they come out with the 9.92, and it's noticeably better. You know, all these transitions that we've made with the different models and different components, and you say, yeah, it might be a little bit different. I feel it here or there. But with the 992, it's a big difference. You, you instantly feel it the minute you start to roll on it. So, um, and that's, I think, really special. But the whole lineup that Porsche has, whether it's a Macan, Cayman, all these cars are just phenomenal. And they, they, you know, they suit the personalities of a vast array Can you of people. say what variants of the 992 you've driven so far, like GT3? I have not, unfortunately, <laughs> driven the 992 you yet. haven't yet. Um, but uh, I've talked to a bunch of people that have, and uh, they all kind of the same thing. What about, what about you, Patrick? The new, I had an opportunity to drive the 918 uh, at the Red Bull Ring in Austria with hot laps, and it was so much fun to drive. It was consistent. It was predictable, <clears throat> and just just you were smiling the whole time. It was a blast. But I think what's interesting about the entire fleet is that the DNA is is in every model, depending on what your need is. Like the Panamera to me, uh, the Gran Turismo Sport is what I'm really into right now, 
and it's nice to go through the fleet. But if you're in a big city, the McCann is great to get around. If you're, so I, I'm very fortunate to go around and, and try each one in different, in different environments. And the DNA is in each one. It feels the same. Yeah. A little different characteristically. There's little nuanced things there, but it feels the same way, which is nice. It's consistent. Yeah. Fantastic. So I like them all. It just depends on... <laughs> but I have to say, the, the Cayenne, the GTS version to me is, yeah. is my favorite. Yeah. And you guys are on those sweet deals where they just dump them in your driveway, right? Whenever you, you want them. Through. <laughs> you rotate through. You rotate through. But then it's fun to share it. The best part is when you, you, you have someone, especially kids, who have never been in the cars before, and you let them climb around and have their first moment, or either older people who have not had an opportunity, mm-hmm. you just give them the keys and go take it for a drive. And watch the reaction, and then bring it back to you is the greatest satisfaction. Yeah, that, yeah and I, that's the beauty of the brand, I think. I, I'll, I'll uh, you know, come in on that conversation. We just did a program, we ran from LA up Pacific Coast Highway with six journalists with six different variants of, of the Porsche product, and I was in the 918, and so. Uh, it was really funny to see the reactions of very seasoned journalists that have not driven a 918 before, and suddenly they get in yeah. this road, or this this car on a super road, the 33. I don't know if anybody's been on 33 before, but it is the most fantastic road that you ever could imagine, and they are just giggling like girls. I mean, they just <laughs> they go, oh my god, I can't believe this car is doing this. So. It's fun to watch their reactions. It's incredible. All right, the floor is yours, my friends. We have sequestered start right here in the front. There's a microphone coming around, but I can hear in Birmingham, Alabama, in a, in a Porsche 450 GT where you were driving. And much like you said, I, I was giggling like a schoolgirl. I think I cried a little as well. I, I recall, I don't know if that track's true, but like 200 miles an hour into a, a left-hand turn that you were just flying. And uh, yeah. so I, I appreciate that. It, it taught me a lot about driving. My son right here just turned 16. Any advice for a new driver? And the, the driving age is 16 in Connecticut now. That's a good question. That's a really good question. New yeah. driver advice. Yeah. Carding. Carding's great. Yeah. Carding is a really good uh, foundation, um, and then if they're successful in the carding, and that's where a lot of the team managers go to s- search out new talent. I meant new, new driver on the road. Yeah, he means no, he means new oh, driver oh, on the road. Oh, you know, just what you need to do is you need before you start to you know try these different things that people tell you about, you know, doing donuts and doing all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you've, you've got to go to a driving school and to learn the, the basics of what you're, what you're driving. I always tell fathers that have kids that are starting to drive, you want to start in a manual transmission car. Don't start in an autom- automatic. You, when, when you have a, a, a manual transmission, your hands are either on the wheel or on the, on the shifter. They're not on the phone looking at a text message. So that's really important. And once you sort of get the sequence of what you're doing with the manual transmission, then that sort of, as you go back to an automatic, you're still thinking about the process that you used when you were, when you were doing a manual transmission. So, yeah, start also, in a manual. Start, start driving when you're 12 and lie about Corvettes. <laughs> Do that, too. Just All get right. a rental car with a lot of insurance and go into a field. Don't and just have fun, gentlemen. It's great, great uh, forum so far. Quick so question: far. Uh, What watches are you guys wearing right oh, now? Oh, go ahead. 
Thank you. Good question. Well, you, well, and then I, I got two I, other I super quick. Uh, Just this, one. That was you, uh, from uh, 1991. That Winning race. Daytona? Yeah. Wow. I don't Fantastic. even want to say what my watch and is. And then, Hurley, I, I watched you race up at uh, PIR in Portland. Um, I think maybe the first flame I saw come out of back end of a car live was possibly you. But um, any good little story about Portland International Raceway? Uh, well, I, that was G.I. Joe, right? Yep. The G.I. Joe. Yeah, that was an a interesting racetrack. Uh, they, you know, the turn one... <laughs> Is pretty pretty interesting. That was really crowded. I think they've got some chicanes now that slows the cars down. But in the old days, I mean, you used to just fly down that straightaway, and then you'd have a you know basically a parking lot at the as you go into turn one. So yeah, it's great, and and I love Portland. I love the city of Portland. They they uh, really treated us really great up there, and tons of good restaurants, and and uh, so I always enjoyed going there. In the corner over there, all the way in yes, the back, sir. do we have a microphone on that? Do you need a microphone, sir? Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's uh, Mr. Jerry Seinfeld. Hi. <laughs> Here comes the embarrassing question. Hurley, <laughs> if you could have any of your race cars to have today uh, as a memento of your career, which one would you pick? To own today? That's a very good question. Well, I've got most of the significant race cars that I've driven in our collection, which you've you've seen. Um, we're building a new facility. Uh, when when Brumos was sold three almost four years ago now, uh, they uh, the new owners, which are the Field Group, which is based out of Chicago, allowed us to keep our cars in where they were in the in the collection. Now that time has run out, so we made the decision to build a new facility, which is twice as big. Uh, it's going to be state-of-the-art. Uh, Dan Davis has got the same people that put together the uh, displays for Ralph Lauren's um, collection and um, the collection down in uh, South Florida. Um, not Morris. Who's this guy down in South Florida? Um, T? The Collier. Collier, Collier, yeah. Collier. Right. Collier. So uh, it's really going to be state-of-the-art, and we're really looking forward to it. We're, I think we'll be in there. We're going to make the move with the cars, I think, in October. And, uh, you know, we have some great cars. One of, one of the wonderful things about having Dan, as, Dan Davis as your partner is that his, he's very collectic in his, in his collection. He's got Miller race cars. He's got, you know, street cars. He's got all kinds of stuff, and it's really interesting to look at. So we're really excited about that. If I'm not mistaken, I think he owns your Brumo 73RSR, and he was trying to sell it back to you right in that moment. <laughs> yeah. I think that might have been what was going on. Yeah. Couple more, quickly, yeah, sure. Anybody, go ahead. Go ahead, chime in. What do you have? Hi there. I'm actually 26 years married to a car guy, and I'm now a car girl. I'm sorry. And we have a GT3 and a oh. GT4 and a GT3 RS, so... That was really cool to hear. I also love 67 Corvette is my favorite Corvette ever. There so wow. um, it's a pleasure to hear you speak. Both of you are amazing. So, Hurley, I have a question to you. What's your favorite 911? Favorite 911? Oh, boy. You know, That's a tough to one. quote Professor, next year's. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and Patrick? A company man right there. 
Who has a Patrick, Patrick, quick, quick question. My daughter absolutely loves Grey's Anatomy. She wants to know why you left and do you miss it? Well, we're not going to talk about television. We're here to I talk about cars. I wouldn't go racing cars. and I don't. I'm so good. <laughs> what do you have? Hey, hey guys. Um, great so far. I just have a question for Patrick. You were talking about how with the, um, with the Hurley doc, you uh, self-funded it. Um, what do you think is the biggest risk that you've taken so far in your acting career, racing career, anything like that? God, I think when you're comfortable and you make a decision to be uncomfortable again, those are the biggest decisions that you make because you don't know how it's going to end. So when you make a decision, and this kind of answers your question, I had an opportunity to race a full season with Porsche in the WEC or do a network television show, two of which these things may never happen again in my life. So I had gone as far as I could in one direction. I I ceased growing uh, creatively, and I needed to challenge myself. And jumping into that season and and going after the dream, not knowing how it would turn out, I knew I had the right team. Those were the moments that you look back on and are tough decisions at the time, but the right decision in the long run. So keeping yourself comfortably uncomfortable and that and still to this day it's like you know always doing that okay go ahead you right in the front row it's fine i can hear you i'll repeat your question um my name is from seattle and um i'm thank you for serving as a fellow veteran i'm from the army i was wondering what you what branch you served in and did they let you drive anything really cool in the military (laughs) (laughs) What, what was it did, did they let him drive anything really cool in the so military? Did you, did you drive anything really cool in the military? Uh, a Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> Those are I, cool. I was, uh, when, when I got my draft notice, my family had the ability to not have me go to a, a conflict zone. And I said, no, I said to my dad, I said, you know, my country calls and... I'm going to go serve my duty. So, thank you. Once that was out of the way, my mother then immediately became the head of the USO in Chicago, in, in, in the whole United States. And uh, when I got over to Vietnam, you were assigned your where you were going to go, and I ended up as an airfield commander's aide. Uh, in Canto, which is a helicopter base, and uh, it was a really good job, but, you know, you were subject to a lot of stuff that is really hard to look at when you even, you know, when I think about it today, it's it's hard, so, um, but I drove him around in the Jeep a lot, and, uh, you know, he was kind of a speed freak, and uh, he had a, a Cobra as his uh, own plane that he, or helicopter that he, he flew around in, and I had to go with him a lot of the time. So it's only two places in a Cobra, two seats in a Cobra, and, uh, you know, I had to sort of learn the basics in, in case something happened. So I, I swore to God that after I got out of the military, I would never ride in a helicopter, <laughs> but that didn't work. Okay, one more All right, Pat- Patrick, this question's for you. Go. Here we go. <laughs> what spurred you on? What, in, what event or what spurred you on to get involved in this crazy world of race car driving? 
I, I loved it when I was a little boy. It was uh, my dad was a big car fan. He 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 owned a car, uh, short track car in Maryland. So as a team owner, so we grew up with it. And certainly the 500 was always something we watched as a family. I'd always listen to it on the radio first because they would delay the tele uh, the telecast. I'd listen to it in the station wagon. In the, uh, we had a Chevy station wagon, and I would lay. So I wouldn't have to mow the lawn. I would lay on the front seat, and I'd listen to the race, and then I would hide if my mother came by. And then I would turn. So that's when it started, yeah. my love for racing. And then, I, you know, it started up here, actually. I did the Skip Barber School. My wife um, gave me a three-day competition certificate, and that sort of opened everything wide open. And then I went to a charity event in Atlanta and met Don Panos. <laughs> And got involved in the Panos Racing School and then the Racing Series, and that's when it just everything started very quickly at that point. But uh, well, gentlemen, you, you get hooked; it's a, an addiction. <laughs> you, it's also what it would tell everybody your first wheeled vehicle that you were pursued when you were a child. The first wheel; it had one wheel. Oh, a unicycle. a unicycle. He was a unicycle rider. That's how I got around. Yeah, he started at Clown College. He's an accomplished juggler. There's more to this man than acting in racing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Well, thank you guys for coming. Ladies and gentlemen, Hurley Haywood, Patrick Dempsey. The movie is Hurley. You've got to check it out if you haven't seen it. Thank you all so much for being here. Thanks for listening to Spikes Car Radio. Download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Hey, Jordan here. I know a lot of you create your own podcasts, and a lot of you already have one like me. I obviously love what I do. It's taken a lot of hard work to get to this point of success. You shouldn't have to pay fees for platform hosting, distribution, analytics, or fees to create a podcast. You need to be able to focus on producing the best show possible. Now, Podcast One, that's the network I'm on, they have Launchpad Digital Media, or Launchpad DM for short. So it's free, includes unlimited hosting, full control of distribution. You have access to a full dashboard with analytics. Again, totally free. You own everything, by the way. You own your content, you own your subscribers, no tricky stuff there. And you get your own show page on launchpaddm.com for people to listen to and subscribe to your show. It's the only hosting platform brought to you by the leading network, Podcast One. Podcast One will promote the site, drive people to discover your podcast. And if your show grows, you could even be invited to join Podcast One's all-star roster, which includes people like Adam Carolla, Caitlin Bristow, Shaq, Lady Gang, and of course, me, Jordan Harbinger, I'm there too. You also get access to their production and sales support. So with all this completely free, don't use other hosting platforms. Why would you need to? Learn more or sign up now at launchpaddm.com. And don't forget to check out the Jordan Harbinger Show.